0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed coronavirus changed forever presented by balance of nature
1: welcome to the cbs special coronavirus changed forever i'm gil gross For the last 15 years, Jim Greenwood has been president and CEO of Bio, the largest biotech trade group in the world. And before that, he served in Congress, helped modernize the FDA, and worked to lift the ban on embryonic stem cell research. Biotechnology is the industry that could be the leader in steering us out of a global pandemic. Jim is also the host of the podcast, I Am Bio. Jim, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch first of the organization, Bio? A lot of people
0: are going to be hearing about it for the first time. What is it? What does it do? Sure. Well, well, it's the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Bio, and we are the uh, national trade association for about 1,000 biotechnology companies, and some of them, most of them, are overwhelmingly from the U.S., but they also come from 35 different countries. Uh, We include the big pharmaceutical companies that everyone has heard of, but more importantly, hundreds and hundreds of startup biotech companies that are on the cutting edge of innovation. And then we also advocate for policy that uh, will help to speed uh, biotech innovation and bring new uh, drugs to patients. And of course, now that's more important than ever.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about new drugs because that may be exactly what we're needing right now. And I know Bio's mission is to advance biotechnology innovation by promoting sound public policy and fostering collaboration locally and globally. So, how is that mission working in the fight to end this particular pandemic well
0: it's the good news is that uh in laboratories at our companies around the country um and around the world uh scientists are coming up with some very hopeful drugs drugs that will um, prevent the virus from from replicating and 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 basically cure uh the 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 infection uh, and also vaccines that will prevent us from getting the infection um, should we be exposed to it so there's a lot of people who
1: are really frightened right now. they have a right to be. What is the biotech industry saying to those
0: people? Well, we're saying help is on the way. Uh, we have drugs that are going into that have already gone into clinical trials. Um, we have drugs that will be going into clinical trials this month, and uh, it could very well be that within a few months we have some uh important drugs that will uh, at least treat the symptoms, prevent the acute respiratory uh, syndrome that happens when people's lungs aren't functioning and they need the respirators. And eventually, and by eventually, I mean probably not until January, uh, we'll have vaccines.
1: Jim, you host the I am Bio podcast. And like everyone, you're focusing on the pandemic. And talking to you are a lot of people in the biotech industry because you know you talk with them. That's your job. So, what have you learned in your conversations with these biotech leaders?
0: Well, I think one of the most important things is that this is a case where every one of them uh, understands that this is a unique and tragic and deadly time in our history, and the companies are not really thinking about profitability, whether they whether they earn money. Break even, lose money—that's not paramount in their minds. What's What's paramount is how do we all work together? Which company can help support the science of another company? If a small company comes up with a with a drug or a vaccine, can a larger company uh, pitch in and manufacture it in the quantities we need? So it's really uh, like never before. I think the industry is pulling together to try to save literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Let's talk about how this might work, because we're still starting to
1: experience what this particular kind of coronavirus is. And one of the unknowns is how long the antibodies will stay with us, how long we're immune with us. One of the worries is that this thing might calm down late spring or early summer,
0: but then might come back, even for the people who've already had it. Is that one of the worries here? Well, there are a number of worries. The, 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 they all center around the fact that this is a novel coronavirus, so it's not one we've experienced before. So questions like, can you be reinfected after you've you've uh, successfully fought off the virus, are, those questions are still to be answered. We don't know. And another concern is that uh, it, as we see the, the, the deaths um, peak and then begin to fall down and the number of infections uh, subside, uh, that will be very, very good news, of course, but that still leaves the vast majority of the population unexposed to the virus. So how we will be able to reintegrate people back into the workplace and back into normal life uh, remains a question as well. And I think part of that will depend on how uh, soon we're able to get uh, diagnostic testing uh, available to, in, in mass uh, quantities.
1: I understand that there is some possibly exciting news for those of us who are concerned about the toll that COVID-19 is taking in our country and nations around the world from one of your
0: member companies. Can you tell us about that? Well, there's a company called Moderna, and uh, it's in Boston. And what it's able to do is quite striking. Um, They were able to, once they had the sequence, the genetic sequence of the virus, they were able to just in a couple of days create a potential vaccine that would fight fight the virus. And they've already um, begun to test that uh, two or three weeks ago in healthy people to make sure that um, that it's safe, that it's not toxic to get the dosing down. And they hope to have results, um, some pretty good data uh, within the next several months. So we could have a very effective uh, active vaccine um, by the beginning of next year. In terms of how quickly a vaccine can be
1: developed, let's listen to One of your member companies, Stefan Bansell, is CEO of Moderna, a clinical stage biotechnology company.
2: You could see a world where if there's a mutation of of a coronavirus that is known to the scientific community. We could literally, in a matter of weeks, make new clinical grade material. We could just go and swap the mRNA and be available again in pharmacies with a vaccine for the new strain.
1: Well, that sounds very hopeful, not just for this, but for all vaccines. Before I ask you more about
0: that, let's explain mRNA. So we all have heard of DNA. Um, That's the critical component of our genetic makeup. Um, But mRNA is messenger RNA. And those are medicines that are sets of instructions, essentially. And those instructions direct cells in the body to make proteins that will prevent or fight disease. It's a very exciting science.
1: Okay, so if we can use all this and get vaccine development down to a matter of weeks, that's an incredible accomplishment.
0: Well, it is an incredible accomplishment. And um, uh, I hope that the, the uh, people of the nation appreciate the fact that the science of biotechnology is doing amazing things right now. Uh, never before has uh, it been so visible to the public uh, that we have this amazing industry out there of biotechnology companies that are able to come up with these kinds of, of of treatments and cures and vaccines in such short notice.
1: Let's listen to Julie Gerberding, who is Executive Vice President and Chief Patent Officer for the global health company Merck and & Company and the former president of Merck Vaccines.
2: One of the most important observations that I made back in 2003, and I think it's holding true, is that we're going to be in a new normal where these animal viruses are spilling over into our societies all the time. I think this is the industry's finest moment. We have more shots on goal for this virus than we've ever had for any new problem in medicine, and our science is so much further ahead than it was, say, in 2003 when SARS first emerged. There's got to be a solution there, but we just have to put it on the fastest possible track and not worry about business but worry about the lives that we can save.
1: So it seems that what she's saying is twofold. First, the technology here is much further along and we can be really hopeful about attacking these things, but they're going to be coming at us more and more frequently.
0: Well, that's true. We've had um, various kinds of plagues and and viral infections that have um, been a scourge on the planet for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, But now we have, uh, of course, the ability for people to trans themselves all over the, the world by like air transportation, and the, the rate of contagion goes way up. Fortunately, the United States leads the world in biotechnology, and the world looks to us to come up with the treatments and the cures and the vaccines. And thank God, uh, we have the capacity here to do that. One of the things that concerns people is access and affordability.
1: We get something like this in the market. We're still dealing, just here in the United States, with a population of about 28% of whom don't have insurance. And then, of course, we're dealing with three quarters of the world that's still living in poverty. And we want to make sure this thing just doesn't, you know, like switch hemispheres and keep coming back at us. So how do we make sure, especially when we're dealing with a virus where one person can apparently fairly easily give it to another person, how do we make sure there's access and availability? for any vaccine, because without that, this can just go on
0: forever. Right. Well, I think there's a, a fundamental moral principle uh, at play here, and that is that no one should ever do without the medicine he or she needs because they cannot afford what's required <clears throat> to come from their pockets. And I think you'll see and are seeing that both in terms of what the industry is willing to do to make sure that uh, everybody can afford to, to get these, these drugs and these vaccines. And I think what you're seeing the United States Congress Doing, Which is to make sure that uh, insurers are required to pay for it and that the money will be available uh, from the government that's necessary to make sure that everyone has access. We can't possibly tolerate the notion that someone would um, uh, have to undergo terrible symptoms or death because they cannot afford the drug. We just can't let that happen. And we won't. Jim Greenwood is president and CEO of Bio, which is the largest biotech
1: trade group in the world. He is also the host of the podcast, I Am Bio, which you can find on all the major podcast apps or on the website, bio.org. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever.
0: CBS Audio presents Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back
1: to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. We're joined by Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize-winning health and science writer, author of The Coming Plague, Betrayal of Trust, The Collapse of Global Public Health, and Ebola, Story of an Outbreak. All of those books and decades of her reporting, of course, bear on what's going on now, including cover story in the upcoming New Republic, Grim Reapers. Lori, good to talk to you. How are you? Hi, Gil. In there, here in the epicenter. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to that in a moment. But let's uh, let's start with how we got here, because there's a couple of things that that happen here. One is the lack of preparation, another is the confluence of politics. Despite in China and the United States, two seemingly different governments—a communist government in China, a conservative Republican government in the United States—and yet many of the same things playing out. And, and let's start in China. Do, do we have a handle on how all this got started yet?
2: I think we do, though there still are some missing gaps. We'll probably never really know who was the actual patient zero, though we can trace it all the way back to mid-November with a, a definite case in Wuhan. And we'll probably never know what animal was the intermediary between a bat and the, human, the first human case. So there's always going to be some uncertainty about the the absolute origins, but we do know it was in circulation in Wuhan, starting in roughly about a week before our Thanksgiving and escalating as Christmas approached. And then in the week between Christmas and New Year's, using American holidays, uh, not Chinese to explain it, it surged silently inside Wuhan. And I say silently not to mean that the officials were unaware of it or doctors were unaware. But the world was largely kept in the dark, and it wasn't officially announced by Chinese authorities in Wuhan until uh, December 31st, a day after physicians led by Li Wenliang posted word to each other online that there was this new, very SARS-like pneumonia in circulation, and were reprimanded for doing so. We're told to sign statements calling themselves rumor mongers and liars, and Li Wenliang, of course... Uh, went on to uh, unfortunately get infected with COVID-19 in his work as a physician treating the disease and die of it, becoming quite a national hero inside China.
1: The Chinese government, their initial reaction, as you pointed out, was not only to have uh, doctors punished, but had journalists arrested and kept tamping down the severity of what was going on. And was, was that all politics? I mean, was there, there didn't seem to be any health reason for it.
2: What you can see is that there were a couple things going on. One was the way the Chinese Communist Party has been structured under Xi Jinping's leadership is that everything answers to him and everything is a reward system based on giving the leader the information the leader wants to hear. And what the leader, of course, wanted to hear in the judgment of local officials was nothing but good news. <laughs> Never relay up the chain that there's a catastrophe, because then that you're going to pay a price as the leader for doing so. And so Wuhan authorities, both the official government authorities and the Communist Party, were conveying information up the food chain that said, we've got this under control. It's really no big deal, and it's all about this animal market. And we've shut the market down. And now that it's shut down, there's really nothing to look at behind this curtain. Pay no attention to the man pulling the levers. You know, very wizard of eyes. But obviously, some very different information was simultaneously getting up the food chain. And part of it was the result of a special committee put together of scientists from the China CDC headquarters in Beijing, from Hong Kong University in uh, Hong Kong, and Uh, from uh, Guangzhou, who went in and looked at the situation and reported back, no, this is not just about the animal market. The market's closed, and there's human-to-human transmission, and this thing is out of control, and it's incredibly dangerous. We know that that got all the way to the fearless leader, Xi Jinping, by January 7th, because on that day, He gave a speech to the State Committee, which is essentially talking to the Politburo, saying, I'm stepping in here, there's something serious going on, I'm taking command. So it's almost unheard of for a head of state to take command of what allegedly is a small outbreak of a public health problem in one city and one locality in the country. So he obviously knew by then that this was much bigger than was being officially reported to the World Health Organization then or to anybody outside of Wuhan.
1: Here in the United States, the initial reaction is also to minimize it. Viruses have no particular politics that any of us know of, but treating it as a political question rather than that as, what do we do in terms of health? And so we had that mirrored and it cost valuable time in doing something about this virus.
2: You can see what Washington knew and what they were willing to do. And we now know that the intelligence community was already firing up alarms up the food chain in Washington trying to bring to our fearless leader, Donald Trump, awareness that there was a potential catastrophe looming in China that could affect us. We also know that Trump was really not particularly personally interested in it, and that there wasn't a lot of concern inside the White House for quite a while. We're now aware that the first case that came to the United States started departing Wuhan on January 10th. And he arrives at Seattle's SeaTac Airport uh, and goes through airport clearance and then heads home to Sonomish County, which, as we all know now, became the first real focal point of spread of the disease inside the United States. And his infection and the fact that COVID-19 was there becomes well known on January 21st. Well, the point of this timeline is that this all precedes the moment when Donald Trump orders that we lift the drawbridge, fill the moat, and protect Castle America by doing airplane shutdowns and airport screenings and trying to keep the, the virus out by imagining that it can't swim the moat climb the walls and come into the castle. But, of course, it didn't work. And though Trump continues, even as recently as last week, in press conferences to credit himself with buying time for the American people by following this practice of shutting down airport access and limiting the movement of travelers into America, the truth of the matter is it was already here, And we now can work backwards in other locations and see it was already spreading in the United States, human to human, inside of places like nursing homes and inside of hospitals before we pulled up the drawbridge. And it's pretty clear that if it did buy us time, if indeed it did maybe slow things down by two weeks, which is what some modelers say, well, we didn't do anything during those two weeks that would have made us better prepared. For the onslaught there was no sudden let's get some ventilators let's make sure we got test kits that work let's figure out an infrastructure and a strategic plan none of that was done and none of that was done until we already had full-blown outbreaks in multiple locations across america
1: in the decades that you and i have been talking uh, about public health and and disease There's been a a common theme across the years, across different administrations, across different governments around the world, and this is this lack of preparation. And in some ways, it reminds me of, you know, the failure for governments, again, all around the world to spend on infrastructure because, you know, people want to spend money to put up new things, not take care of old things, and then the bridge falls down and people die and people start talking about infrastructure again. And public health and dealing with viruses and plagues and such – it seems to be similar that it's not going on now, it's not important, which leaves us completely unprepared or largely unprepared when it shows up.
2: Gil, you and I have had this conversation for, you know, a couple of decades, and I was writing this starting in the nineteen eighties. And it's very clear that we have a pattern with public health spending generally and with pandemic and epidemic preparedness specifically that reflects a roller coaster cycle of concern. Uh, by politicians. This is universal. It's every kind of political system. It's not just America. It's everywhere. We get all revved up and worried when we've just had or we're in the middle of an epidemic. And then we just lose interest and the money starts disappearing the further away you get from that epidemic. And we've seen this cycle play out over and over and over. And the problem specifically for public health spending, as I showed in um, my book, Betrayal of Trust, is that it really reflects that moment when public health is most successful. That's when you cut, but they cut the budgets because public health is a negative. When it's working, there's no data because there's nobody getting unusually ill. There's no unusual outbreaks. There's no sudden surge in mortality in a hospital. So the data says no problem. And while the same is true for the fire department, And when the fire department comes and says, we are happy to report that no one died in a fire in this city in the last week, the mayor doesn't say, oh, good, then we don't need the fire department. We can cut the budget. But that's because everybody's afraid of fire. They see it. They hear the sirens. And rich and poor alike die in fires. But with public health, when the public health officer comes to the mayor and says, I'm happy to report there's been no unusual outbreaks. There's no food contamination, and the water remains safe to drink. The mayor says, oh, good, then we don't need to spend as much as we're spending on you. Let's cut your budget by 10%. And that, unfortunately, is the pattern we see all over the world.
1: Pulitzer Prize-winning health and science journalist Lori Garrett. We have more with her coming up on Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Coronavirus Changed Forever, presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with health and science journalist Lori Garrett, and we are talking about how political divides can get in the way of necessary health spending.
2: We developed, starting in the Reagan era, a political dynamic in the United States that says if you're a good Republican, you believe in small government and cutting budgets. And if you're a good Democrat... You believe in bigger government and social services. Then you start to have a partisan divide developing, starting in the Reagan years and getting larger and deeper. Then you have the Trump uh, administration come in and the president eliminates from the budget as much funding as he can get away with and get Congress to approve that is related to Obamacare, Medicaid, the Centers for Disease Control, health security budgets for both developing countries and the United States, World Health Organization support, so on and so forth, so that then when we get hit by this epidemic, we find ourselves with a very weakened capacity to respond.
1: When we defeated smallpox, the United States and the then Soviet Union were able to get together and make sure that that vaccine was available worldwide. If we do come up with somethings of vaccine or something preventive for COVID-19. We're now dealing with 8 billion people and three quarters of them live in extreme poverty. There's going to have to be some kind of major international cooperation on this. Are you hopeful about that?
2: Well, Gil, I've spent eight hours on the phone in a teleconference with Beijing talking about exactly this issue. You know, we have this War of words that's gotten really out of control between China and the United States, a blame game. You made this epidemic. No, you made this epidemic. We're calling it the Chinese virus. That's racist. Back and forth. It's gotten completely, totally out of hand. And I end my New Republic piece saying that I'd be willing to go ahead and give both Xi and Trump the Nobel Peace Prize if they would right now shake hands, stop the vitriol, and as the two most powerful economies on Earth, agree to setting out a a set of global standards that would be mutually agreed upon and that they would lead the whole world in an all-out crusade to do two things. One, completely develop, test, and get out the door as fast as possible a truly effective vaccine against COVID-19. And two, set up mechanisms that ensure that that vaccine is 100% available to everyone on Earth, not just those in rich countries at some price scheme that everyone can afford, and with an infrastructure, an army deployed all over the planet, a public health infantry to get the vaccine where it needs to go. To do that in short term, accomplishing what was done with the smallpox campaign over a decade time, if we could manage to do it in less than a year and vaccinate the whole planet, we could stop this virus forever in its tracks. But here's the problem. In fact, there's a competitive war going on between U.S. laboratories and pharmaceutical companies and Chinese labs and pharmaceutical companies. Both will want patents. Both will want some profit return. And there's just nothing built into any of the agreements so far that would void those sections of the World Trade Organization agreement that are in the way, that would void uh, certain kinds of patent provisions. Or as uh, Jonas Salk famously said when asked, why he had never taken out a patent on the polio vaccine he invented and had given it patent-free to the world. He said, would you patent the sun? Well, we're in a situation now where, yes, we've been patenting the sun over and over again, and we've got a completely out-of-control situation in terms of how pharmaceuticals are made in the world. And it's not stacking up in favor of the scenario I laid out for bringing the virus under control, which then leads to the very strong possibility that we could get a year or two years out on this crisis and see that we end up vaccinating the wealthy world, mostly Northern Hemisphere, with the exception of Australia and New Zealand, and we leave the Southern Hemisphere and the poorer parts of the Northern Hemisphere to suffer endless cycles of COVID-19, and it becomes endemic permanently entrenched in the human population, just like HIV. And just as we've done with HIV, we try to coordinate off into a subset of humanity and keep it at bay with some combination of vaccines and treatment in some you know, large-scale charitable effort. But we don't eradicate it, and we don't eliminate the threat and periodically it returns with a vengeance to the Northern Hemisphere, and we have to once again wage a giant vaccine campaign with yet another generation of unvaccinated and unimmune-defended population. And this becomes the new permanent threat of infectious disease on humanity's landscape, just as HIV did. If we're not careful, that's where we're headed. And I argue our only hope is a rapprochement and mutual commitment by the two most powerful countries and Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. They have to step forward. They have to find something in, in themselves that's so much better than anything their followers have ever imagined. And they have to somehow take this bull by the horn.
1: Laurie Garrett has the lead article in the New Republic coming up, Grim Reapers. Laurie, thank you for your time.
2: Thanks, Gil, and stay safe, everybody.
1: This is Coronavirus changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
0: CBS Audio presents Coronavirus Changed Forever.
1: Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. For millions of Americans, in fact, for people all around the world, if for any reason you were stuck at home, you would turn on the radio or TV and find a game. Any game. Football, baseball, basketball, highlight, curling... Yeah, it's come to that. If some station was doing radio play-by-play of curling, we might actually tune in. Usually, of course, when you have time in your hands or something you'd really not like to think about for a few hours, there is sports, but not now. James Brown is special correspondent for CBS News and host of the NFL Today, and he has some thoughts about what
3: those missing games might mean to us right now. Thanks, Gil. Sports They are certainly an important part of my career, but more than that, they have been a foundational part of my life, in no small way. The life lessons I learned as a high school and college athlete, the mentorship I received from my coaches, and the camaraderie I felt with my teammates has had an immeasurable impact on making me the person I am today. Millions of athletes around the world have put their hopes, dreams, and aspirations aside. They are foregoing the March Madness of NCAA basketball and postponing the pursuit of a gold medal in the Olympic Games. All to keep us a little bit safer from the deadly pandemic of COVID-19. It's the right thing to do. And all professional and amateur sports organizations should be applauded for making the tough decisions to prioritize our health over their bottom lines. Make no mistake, sports is big business. Forbes estimates the North American sports industry alone makes $73.5 billion a year. But sports is much more than a business. It's a global passion, a respite from our daily lives, a way to engage with each other, and historically, sports has been a unifier. Sports helped us through 9-11. The games were healing and a way to display our patriotism giving added meaning to the singing of the National Anthem and God Bless America.
2: God bless
3: America, land that I love, stand beside her. During the 2008 recession, our favorite teams gave us joy even as our 401ks dropped beyond belief. The coronavirus pandemic poses a challenge that is both a health and economic crisis. Gone is the gathering of diverse fans who now shelter in place instead of coming together to cheer their athletic heroes and place that elusive emotion of hope on the field of play. Legendary sporting events that span centuries like Wimbledon and the Olympic Games have been canceled or postponed. But the void of competition is abundantly filled by the true value we all receive from the universal bond of sports. Community. The sports community has banded together to support each other and the public. Everyone from athletes to owners to leagues have chipped in. Steph Curry did a video chat with Dr. Anthony Fauci to give fans guidance on how to protect themselves. Zion Williamson and Giannis Antetokounmpo are among several players to donate money to support out-of-work arena staff. Mark Cuban and Ted Leontes have led owners and teams to do the same for every NBA franchise. At a cost of $2 million, Robert Kraft sent his Patriots team plane to China to buy over 1 million much-needed N95 masks for Massachusetts and New York. Major League Baseball teams have donated $1 million each, a total of $30 million, to help their stadium workers. And the NCAA has extended an extra year of eligibility for all of the spring college athletes who are missing their seasons. I'm also proud to say that CBS Sports and our partner at Turner Sports have paid the salaries of technicians and workers who were poised to help us broadcast March Madness. One day, the COVID-19 storm will have passed. We will once again be able to walk together in sunlight and meet again on the fields and the courts, in the stadiums and arenas, as competitors and as observers, in the endeavor as old as humanity itself, sharing the common bond of athletic competition. I pray and hope that these tremendous acts of sacrifice, kindness, and togetherness will will be the lasting memory of this unprecedented time in our history. The late Nelson Mandela once said,
4: Sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to inspire. It has the power to unite people in a way that little us does. It speaks to youth in a language they understand. Spot can create hope where once there was only despair. It is more powerful than governments in breaking down racial barriers. It laughs in the face of all types of discrimination. The heroes are standing with me are examples of this power. They are valiant. Not only in the playing field, but also in the community, both local and international. They are champions, and they deserve the world's recognition.
3: <clears throat> and as we confront a world that seems to be changing by the minute, let's not forget that the healing power of love compassion, and teamwork equal a winning combination.
1: CBS News special correspondent James Brown. Sports has generally been there for us, even when it was uncomfortable. Two days after President Kennedy was assassinated, the NFL played its schedule of games, though Commissioner Pete Rozelle said later it was the biggest mistake of his career. Giants Hall of Fame linebacker Sam Huff said it was the only game he played in in his whole career that he just didn't care about. The then-separate AFL canceled its games. The NBA canceled games the night of the assassination, but then went right back on the court. Most colleges canceled their weekend games, but the day after the assassination, Oklahoma and Nebraska played after Oklahoma coach Bud Wilkinson called Bobby Kennedy, who told him the country could use some normalcy. After 9-11, sports went on hiatus, most leagues not playing for at least a week. In 1989, as a World Series game began, the Lomba Prieta earthquake, broadcast live as Candlestick Stadium in San Francisco shook in a 6.9 magnitude quake, was postponed for a week and a half as the ballparks in San Francisco and Oakland were checked out and as 63 dead were remembered and 3,800 injured were cared for. But in each of these cases, we knew sports would come back and do so quickly because we needed the break and we needed to know life goes on. The problem this time is that even without anybody in the seats, athletes can give this virus to one another. You cannot do social separation under the backboard or stay six feet away as somebody slides into second, and even touch football involves, well, touch. If, as the old Roman saying goes, we are kept happy by bread and circuses, it does no good when we're afraid to go shopping for bread and there's no circus in town. It'll be nice when things get back to normal, a meaningless game among cellar-dwelling teams, overpriced warm beer, cotton candy that we get because it's a game, and we've always gotten it, even though we've never much liked it, well, it sounds pretty good right now, even when it's just watching a guy sweep some ice in front of a sliding, whatchamacallit, even that. You're listening to Coronavirus, Changed Forever, from the CBS Audio Network. Coronavirus Changed Forever, presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been protecting the health of Americans most of his adult life since being appointed head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases during the Reagan administration in 1984, being trusted to serve Republican and Democratic presidents all that time. On CBS This Morning, Gail King asked him about the possible death toll from COVID-19.
2: Dr. Fauci, we all know this, pa- this is a pandemic of numbers, and I heard you say the other day that now projections are up to 240,000 people could die, and this is practicing the social distancing. I also heard you say we should not be discouraged. I was encouraged to hear that, but why should we not be discouraged when we hear such frightening numbers?
5: Because it's within our power to modify those numbers, those numbers that you heard the other day that I, that uh, Dr. Berks and I mentioned from the White House press conference, were numbers based on a model. You model what the projection might be, and the projection was that even with considerable mitigation, you still could anticipate between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths. However, if you really push hard on mitigation and data comes in that tells you you're doing better than the model, you can modify the model. So what I was saying is though, even though we need to anticipate these rather disturbing numbers, we shouldn't give up and accept it and say, okay, that's gonna happen. We need to push and push with the mitigation to try and get that number lower than the projected number by the model.
1: Gail also asked Dr. Fauci about the reaction he's gotten from some of the very Americans whose lives he's trying to save.
2: Dr. Fauci, I know we have to go, but there are reports that you now have to have security. I was very sorry to hear that for you. And I'm wondering the the personal pressure. Do you feel pressure to get this right? You know, you are the most respected, the most admired. When you speak, we listen. I'm wondering how this has affected you personally.
5: You know, it's my job. This is the life I've chosen, and I'm doing it. I mean, I mean, obviously there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I, I would be foolish to deny that, but that's what I do. I've been through crises like this before, dating back, you know, 37 years from the very beginning of the HIV epidemic. It's a job to do, and we've just got to do it. Death threats that
1: are considered serious enough to have to protect Dr. Fauci is something to think about. This virus has no politics, it has no idea whether it's infecting a Republican or a Democrat, and you generally don't threaten to kill somebody who's trying to save your life. It's unfortunate this happened in a political year because people are ascribing political motives to solid health information. The fact that the President, even after initial doubt, succeeds to Dr. Fauci's recommendations should tell us something about the esteem in which he's held. Killing the messenger, or even threatening to, doesn't change the message. Also, threatening to kill an American trying to save thousands of American lives is the sort of thing an enemy of America would do. No matter what your politics, the best thing you can do for your side is take precautions and live to vote in November. Right now, America's greatest enemy isn't watching cable TV or reading memes, either angry or funny. This virus is not even trying to kill us. It just does. Americans, including nurses and doctors, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci, are what's in its way. And we should not get in their way. This has been Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.
2: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast